You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be finding out about the UK's practice variation in referring to secondary care. It, it could be that the burden of disease pushes up the threshold for referring in deprived areas. Also, Simon Wright from Save the Children, the BMJ's Christmas charity, joins us in the studio to discuss their work. There's very high rates of diarrheal death, uh, pneumonia, malaria in many countries. But before all that, I'm joined by David Payne, who's here with his pick of what's online this week. Hi, David. Hello, Duncan. So what have you got for us? The first thing I thought I'd mention was we've had a series in the BMJ for a while now where we look at the health systems of other countries and we've concentrated on Europe. So we've done France and Germany and the Netherlands, Spain and Sweden. We've got Turkey coming up, but we've actually looked further afield this week and we have a series of articles about the health system in Brazil. It really sort of heralds the successes that Brazil's had, basically that's hinged around a a unified health system that was set up when the constitution was formed in Brazil in 1988 sort of its linchpin is doctors, nurses and community health workers. It's achieved an awful lot. There are challenges ahead, but I really would recommend that readers look at the cluster of articles that we have and read the Editor's Choice by Fiona Godley. She makes the point that we look to the US a lot in, in Europe for negative and uh, positive comparisons with healthcare systems, and she really thinks that Brazil merits a mention. So she sort of encourages all to, to look over there. And see what we can find. Absolutely. Very interesting. And you've also got something about our charity this year. Yes, obviously one of Brazil's success has been the uh, community health workers and that's a linchpin of some of the projects that Save the Children is involved in. As listeners will probably know, Save the Children is our Christmas charity this year. Uh, We've set ourselves an ambitious target to raise £30,000. We had some excellent news this week. We had a print reader who used the coupon to donate £1,000, which we were very, very encouraged by. Um, We've raised uh, about £900 elsewhere, but um, we would really like to reach £30,000 by the end of January. So we do encourage all our readers and uh, listeners to to donate, which they can do by going to savethechildren.org.uk forward slash BMJ. Um, And if you want to find out more, I can recommend an article that's online and in print this week, which is going mobile in Delhi. A journalist called Ganapati Madhur looks at uh, mobile health clinics in Delhi. And we'll hear some more about that later in the podcast from Simon Wright from Save the Children. Absolutely. Now, what's your last piece for us? Well, the last thing, obviously, we're sort of hedging into the Christmas season now. And um, there was a blog that caught my eye on bmj.com by Julian Sheever, who's one of the BMA's uh, ethics advisors. And he blogs very successfully for us. Uh, And he looks at addiction and he sort of examines the moral harms of addiction. And it kind of resonated with me because, like Julian, I'm I'm of a certain age and um, a glass of wine in hand most evenings. Julian really ponders in a a very philosophical way, which I think is his forte, um, you know, about, uh, you know, the moral unease we have around addiction his conclusion is really that a good life for all its pleasures is founded on a deal of self-suppression um, it seems a little bit of an austere message to have as we go into the Christmas season <laughs> but I really would recommend his blog it's very thought-provoking absolutely great well thank you very much David thank you Duncan now variation in practice is one of the areas that the quality and healthcare movement want to stop as everyone should be employing best practice But when we think of variation, we tend to think of prescribing or perhaps some surgical techniques. But as a paper published online on bmj.com this week shows, it can also happen at the interface between primary and secondary care. To talk about the research, I'm joined on the phone by Dulcie McBride, a consultant in public health in the Department of Epidemiology and Public Health at University College London. Thanks for joining me, Dulcie. Your paper is entitled Explaining Variation in Referral from Primary to Secondary Care, a Cohort Study. What prompted you to look at that? Were you already aware that there was some variation in referral? Well, the the group was already interested in health inequalities. um, 
and we knew that there was evidence uh, that certain groups of the population, for some conditions, receive less treatment in secondary care than other groups. So, um, for instance, socially disadvantaged women, elderly, access primary care more than others, but for some conditions, it's the more socially advantaged men or younger people who receive more treatment in secondary care. So we were, we were asking the question, whereabouts in the pathway could those differences be occurring? So it, it could be in the referral from primary to secondary care, or it could be that people get referred but then don't access secondary care for whatever reason, or it could be that the differences were occurring within the secondary care system itself. Yep. And there was also lots of evidence around saying that referral rates in general varied quite a lot between GP practices. But the question that there didn't seem to be an answer for was whether referral rates varied for different population groups from primary to secondary care. So we decided to focus our attention on that bit of the pathway um, for this study. Sure. Now, you did that by looking at three conditions, postmenopausal bleeding, hip pain and dyspepsia. Why did you choose those specifically? Um, the choice of symptoms is actually quite difficult. Um, we started off realising that we needed to start with a group of common symptoms where referral to secondary care is a relatively common outcome. We need to do that in order to get enough patients and enough referrals. So to, to get sort of our main long list of conditions, we used a number of data sources, and they all pretty much said the same thing. So it was joint pain, abdominal pain, varicose veins, poor vision, skin lesions, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that gave us our, our long list. We also then cut that down because we needed conditions that presented mainly to general practice rather than emergency symptoms that people would go straight to A&E with. But the, the, main, the main difficulty was finding symptoms that were specific enough to relate to a particular diagnosis. So lots of people went to their GP or referred with poor vision, but we didn't know whether the poor vision was going to relate to cataracts or just a refractory problem. Sure. So some of those we, we ended up having to leave out because of those reasons. We also wanted to include um, a condition that, would be, that might be referred to medicine, one that referred to surgery, and we're also looking for a, sort of a reference condition. We wanted to, to try and check data quality. So we wanted a condition where the majority of people should be referred so we could look and see whether that was actually the case. Right. So once we'd done that, we ended up with a list of just six conditions, which, was, which surprised us, but it, it was only six. And then we looked at the referral guidance for those conditions. So one of the ones that was included in that was um, a skin lesion. Mm. And the referral guidance varied depending on the underlying condition. And as there was no way of knowing from the data set what that underlying condition was, again, there was no way of knowing who should be referred and when. So so that's got rid of another three conditions, which left us with just the three that we chose. So postmenopausal bleeding is our reference condition because practically all women should be referred unless they're on HRT. Hip pain in the O55s because the most likely diagnosis is going to be osteoarthritis and there's guidance around that. And then dyspepsia. Guidance varies in terms of referral for the under 55s where, I'm, I'm putting this in a nutshell, but basically it says... Routine referral for endoscopy shouldn't happen for people under 55, but for the over 55s, um, you should consider referral to endoscopy to rule out uh, cancer. Okay. So you got data together to look at referral rates for these three conditions. Um, What patterns came out of that? We looked at referrals by sex, age, and uh, level of social deprivation. 
and we found that for postmenopausal bleeding, we found that 61% of women were referred, which which was a, a good level and compared favourably with another study that had looked at postmenopausal bleeding. And we found that although there was no difference by social deprivation, there was quite a significant difference by age, and that women over six, oh, sorry, over 75 years were less, were a lot less likely and significantly less likely to be referred, um, which was slightly worrying given that the incidence of endometrial cancer increases with age. Yes. For hip pain, we found that women were slightly but significantly less likely to be referred, that people over the age of 65 were less likely to be referred, um, but probably more strikingly for this, for this condition, the more socially deprived a patient was, the less likely they were to be referred, and there was quite a gradient with that. Okay. And then finally for dyspepsia, for the people over 55, so the ones where referral was in the main to rule out cancer, the older you were, the less likely you were to be referred. But again, there was no effect of sex or social deprivation. However, for the under 55s, where routine referral was not recommended, the younger you were, the less likely you were to be referred. Um, but probably more importantly, the more deprived patients were, the less likely they were to be referred. Sure. Now, if we concentrate on the, the sort of social deprivation aspect for a start, were you, was that within a practice or was that between different areas? How, how did that pattern emerge? Um, we actually did some secondary analysis looking at that. And for social deprivation, we found that in the main, the differences were between practices rather than within practices. So it's a whole area that's less likely to be referred than, than individual patients. Did you, were you able to look into the data and, and see why that was? I think the, the good thing about studies that use these large GP uh, data sets is that because they're so big, you can actually show what's happening and whether there are any significant variations, mm. whether it be in referral or treatment and lots of other things. What they, what they can't tell us and what we need other types of study is to tell us why. Having said that, we, we do in our discussion go, in, go into some of the possible reasons for our findings. And of course, it's interesting to speculate um, why, why these um, differences might occur. So it, it could be that the burden of disease pushes up the threshold for referring in deprived areas. Um, that's one possibility. Mm. The other possibility that we discuss is patient preference for referral might influence the rates. So there is evidence that older people might be less willing to undergo procedures because they've had, you know, they've had a good innings or they're worried about poor outcomes, which isn't necessarily correct. Sure. Um, but also that we know that there's evidence that socially disadvantaged groups have lower expectations for their own health, possibly due to their own life experiences. So um, it may be that the conditions that we found where social deprivation had, had an effect on referral rates. These were conditions where the guidance was less explicit for who should be referred and more about a discussion between the, the GP and the patient. So it could be that for whatever reason they are choosing not to uh, go on and have, have further treatment. And of course that has implications for the choice of gender in general for, for patients choosing their own care. Sure, of course. Now, you mentioned there were some guidelines um, about referral for the conditions that, that you chose, particularly postmenopausal bleeding. Is there anything to suggest that a lack of referral might affect people's you know, final outcomes, increase mortality in, in particular populations? I think 
again, in these in these large data set studies, we can show that these differences occur, but because of the nature of the data, what we can't say is whether this is a low inappropriate level referral in in the older people or the or the more socially deprived, or whether this is over inappropriate referral in the less deprived or, or younger age group. Sure. We, we can't tell the appropriateness of, of the referral. I mean, what we count, what we do know is that the more socially deprived groups in society have worse health outcomes. And it could, it could be that, dec- that lower referral rates to secondary care and lack of access to secondary care services is, is, part, of that, is part of the reason for that. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today, Dulcie. Not at all. Thank you. And if you want some more information, that paper is now available for free online on bmj.com. Now, we heard earlier from David about some of the work that Save the Children does. But earlier in the week, Rebecca Coombs, the BMJ's features editor, caught up with the charity to find out some more. So I'm here with Simon Wright, who's Head of Health at Save the Children UK. Hello. Hi. Now, Simon, you, you work in more than 50 countries worldwide and... I think what would be interesting to know is uh, what the main threats to health for for mothers and children uh, in in those countries that you operate. Well, Save the Children's working in, as you said, a very large number of countries across the developing world. Mm. And we're trying to concentrate our work in some of the poorest countries and within those countries working in some of the poorest areas that have the highest need. And in terms of health, we're looking particularly at those countries with very high rates of under five and maternal mortality. And we've got the Millennium Development Goals as a kind of international national target to try and reduce those those deaths and we really take that as our uh, our mission really until 2015 is to try and help the world and help some of the furthest behind countries to achieve that goal. Mm. And what are the kind of the main health reasons why we're seeing high rates of maternal and child mortality? Well, many of the reasons are the reasons that was the case in Britain 100, 150 years ago, which was some of the very basic uh, infections or complications as a result of birth. There's very high rates of diarrheal death, uh, pneumonia, malaria in many countries. Um, Very simple to prevent and simple to treat conditions are still killing children across the developing world, basically because of a lack of access to health care. With this broad range of health problems, how do you set priorities then as a charity? I suppose we do two things, really. When we're working in a country, the team working in that country will first of all do a situation analysis and they'll look at what are the causes of child and maternal mortality and where are the kind of points where, say, the children could act to make a difference. So, for instance, there are many countries where there's a lack of basic care around uh, the newborn. There are many techniques that can be taught and adopted and used in clinics around the world which aren't currently used and which we're supporting. But we'd also take a step back, really, and look at some of the factors behind that. So while we can make improvements to health systems as they currently exist, there's also a need to try and build those health systems. Mm. Is there the financing? Is there the human resources structure? Is there the training curriculum? Is there the right supervision? How are health staff being remunerated? Hmm. And have you got any examples for us of countries that you've gone into and, and had, have set up projects with measurable success? An example that comes up a number of times is what kind of services actually can be provided by lesser trained health staff 
out in the community. And there's a, a kind of concept called community case management, which basically believes that with cases of diarrhea or pneumonia or malaria, that there are treatments that can be given out in the community um, by staff who are trained just very specifically in the management of childhood illnesses, um, who are doing symptomatic diagnosis, can provide the first line of treatment and then refer the child to a clinic for that treatment. In Sierra Leone, for instance, we're working with UNICEF on a pilot to uh, introduce CCM through community health workers in the community. This is something that doesn't exist in the whole of the Sierra Leone health system at the moment. So by piloting it, showing that it can work, working with the government and helping them to adopt that as a national policy could make a real difference to the level of child deaths in that country. To achieve these aims, you presumably uh, work with and employ health professionals, doctors. Are those, is that a mix of, sort of homegrown doctors and, and also British doctors? Yes, we, we have a mix. There's, there's always a big debate, really, about who it's best to employ and how we get the balance right. So certainly expat staff going and working in countries for a period can bring a lot of knowledge and a lot of skills, but we also try much more to build up national staff, so people from the countries, from that culture, people who have a long-term investment, really, in achieving change for their country. There's a debate there and a danger there about recruiting people out of the health services in the country to work for NGOs, and it's something we take very seriously. Mm. To add to that, I suppose, are also the kind of people who can be involved in policy, in influencing, in advocacy, in mobilising communities, uh, making sure communities are aware of their entitlements to health, and that doesn't necessarily need medically qualified staff to do that. And, of course, we're building up that area as well. Mm. You mentioned working um, in tandem with UNICEF in Sierra Leone. Presumably... When you work in some of the developing countries, there's quite a few NGOs also working out there. How do you sort of harmonise your different approaches? It can be very different in different places. There are places that are a desert, really, where Save the Children is the only mm. non-governmental organisation that goes to that area. And often that's the case far away from a capital, perhaps quite an isolated area, an area that not many people want to go and live in an area with a whole range of, of poverty problems. So we'll have a very clear, direct partnership with the government. But you're right, there are other countries, and particularly in emergency situations, where there are a lot of different actors coming in. We've seen an enormous number of agencies going into Haiti as a result of the earthquake. And there are systems which we've helped to support and develop, uh, run through the UN, called the Cluster System, and it means that we should all be working together and coordinating what we're doing and definitely not trying to duplicate. Now, it doesn't always work perfectly, but in countries like Sudan, which you know, is still we would describe as an emergency response, um, it's very important that there is coordination between NGOs, identification of different strengths, different areas, and all of that always in liaison with the government. Mm -hmm. As a charity, do you support um, and enhance existing health systems or do you build services from scratch? Save the Children is very, very clear on this. We do not set up any parallel health systems. That's not the role of NGOs. We would sit down with the government and, and work with them and identify where areas where they need support and where we think with some of the donor money that we have, we can help to strengthen what they're doing. So, you know, they might ask us to take on a certain kind of service mm -hmm. in a certain air part of a country. And that happens particularly in states which we would call fragile states. For instance, in Liberia at the moment, we're just taking on the management of some health services in some districts. It's a temporary solution that the government has asked us to do in order to make sure that health services are getting to some areas they can't reach. Mm. The long-term aim will be to make sure those are handed over into the government system 
And uh, that's absolutely where we pitch ourselves. Mm, great. Okay. Well, thanks very much. It's great. been good to talk to you, and we're delighted to be able to um, support Save the Children. Well, it's very much appreciated. It's very much appreciated by Save the Children. I think the, B- the BMJ is doing is a wonderful thing, and I hope we'll be able to carry on letting you know what we're doing with the money that you're raising for us. Absolutely. Good idea. Thank you. And if you want to find out more about their work, go to bmj.com forward slash Save the Children, where you'll find all the articles we're publishing about them through the course of our appeal. You can also find out details there of how to donate. Uh, the easiest way is just to text GIVE to 70555, which will donate £5, of which Save the Children will get 85%. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be starting our festive roundup, so join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.